Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we dissect a chapter and episode of some of our favorite Ruby books. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. And I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and visit the website rubybookclub.com for more information and to find out which chapters we're going to be reading for the upcoming week. So for this episode, we started looking at the collecting input chapter, where Avdi starts to dig deeper into specific examples, and we covered the introduction of that chapter, as well as using built-in conversion protocols. And we want to do the podcast in such a way that means that you don't have to read the book to keep up, so don't worry if you haven't read it yet. You can follow along now and perhaps go look over the book afterwards if you want to dig deeper. So 4.1, Introduction to Collecting Input. What was your take on that chapter? or that section of that chapter. So this was a good overview of all the ways that you can provide inputs to your methods in Ruby. Um, And so Avdi sort of gives a quick overview of all the different ways you might do that. He starts by looking at things such as um, constants in 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 a method. So you may have something like seconds in a day and just refer to that as a predefined constant. Or you might refer to external classes like time when you say time.now. Well, I do want to say that for the time.now example, uh, that's one that I didn't really think of as an input until he talked about it. You know, and, and when he talked about it, he said, you know, can you look at this and tell me like what's the other input that we talk about? And I was like, where is it? And it was time.now. So I thought that was interesting that other classes can serve as inputs too. Yeah, that's something that has actually... Um, caught me out sometimes when I've been writing Ruby in the sense that when I'm writing tests with Ruby classes and thinking about what I need to require and when um, and whether when you need to require something in your test file or when you need to require something in your class file it's this idea of thinking about where are the inputs needed and so um, Theo often tells me that you know look at where those constants are because those that's the clue for where your input is needed Mm. Um, so it was interesting Avdi yeah it was interesting Avdi bringing that up again in terms of what are the other inputs because you don't really see it that way Um, you tend to think of the typical um, arguments in your functions right and then yeah later on he talks a little bit about the difference between direct and indirect inputs. And he says that uh, he also calls direct simple inputs, and these are inputs which are used for their own value. But then he talks about how time.now is an indirect input. Uh, And what that means is that it's one step removed from the time constant, and it's any time we send a message to an object rather than self in order to use its return value, we're using indirect inputs. So for the time.now example, what I think that means is that time itself is not the input it's a method on time that gives us the input is that how you understood it yeah that's exactly how i understood it and in fact that follows in nicely to his warning of the law of demeter which is um this idea of how many another another way to think about the law of demeter is how many methods calls are you calling on an input so you can say time dot now dot uh, time, for example. And the more chains that you have, it's more of a sign of a smell in your code that means that it's less likely to be easy to adapt and maintain in the future. And your code is tied to a particular setup. And so if you're going to change that behavior, it's going to become more and more difficult. Yeah. And I, I 
know what the law demeter is and i know you know it's when you chain a bunch of methods and that's a code spell it's not really good but i don't think i i really thought too much about why it wasn't good like what is the issue with that and he puts it you know very succinctly and he says the more levels of indirection that appear in a single method the more closely that method is tied to the structure of the code around it so exactly what you were saying the way it's set up it's become it becomes very dependent on that and so the more we can decouple that the more easy it'll be to maintain and the less likely it will be to break right exactly and you want to be able to have your code in small units as possible because that means it's it's more flexible it's easier to change and move units around because you can imagine a case where you want to change the behavior of something but because you've you know you've got five methods chained on one on one method call it's really hard to unpick that and then you end up using that in many places in your code and you want to get maybe an interim state but then you've got to define another method or define another constant and it can get rather messy very quickly so moving on, he then talks about this idea of loading a particular user's preferences to determine what the time format should be in a particular program. And I thought this was a really interesting example because he, he introduces this idea of the input collection stanza. And so um, he's like, okay, take this simple example of you're going to fetch the current user from the, from the environment variable user and then you're going to load the preferences by interpolating that user's name into a file path and what he does is he lays out the example but he says you know I'm going to put white space in between the input bit and then when I actually call for the time and it's interesting because he says by splitting out your methods in terms of which bits are collecting input and which bit is doing the work then you start to see what your code looks like and where, how, how the work is distributed. And that means you can spot things to do with like whether your uh, code is clear or not and how robust it is just through spacing it and, and trying to split it up into those, into those different sections. So how often do you worry about spacing in your code, Saron? You know, it's one of those things where when I see it and I use it, I think, man, this is so much clearer. But I have to admit, it's not yet part of my habit. You know, especially when we talk about having things in methods be very short and very to the point. The idea of adding spaces to me makes me feel like I'm lengthening it, even though I'm not, right? It's a space. I'm not adding more lines of code. It still feels like I'm making it bigger. So it hasn't been a habit that I've I've gotten used to yet. But I do like seeing it when I come across it. That's funny because sometimes I can be quite OCD with formatting and I add lines in because I think of it like paragraphing some text. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I, I somehow feel like it makes my code seem cleaner. But what's interesting about Avdi's point is that obviously if you say to yourself, right, I'm going to split up this method into collecting input and then the work phase, if you struggle to do that, then that might be a sign that you've got code that's doing more than one thing and code that's not so easy to make sense of. Yeah, and this example reminds me of what he talked about, I think it was in the introduction or their chapter one, where he says that a method is going to do at least one of four things. And if you structure your method in the quote unquote the right way or a better way, what you'll find is that purposes one, two, three, and four won't all be interlaced, you know, and mixed up together. It'll be step one is very distinct, and then you'll see step two is very distinct, and step three is very distinct. And just by introducing this idea of the stanza, 
right, the input collection stanza, I'm starting to see that all the input collection stuff in the method that he gives happens right up front. It happens together. You know, it's not input, then some action stuff, then some more input, right? It's it's a very distinct element. And I'm assuming that as we go through these chapters, we'll start to see that happen through other examples. Or we'll see the next, you know, output collection stanza, if that's a thing. Um, and we'll kind of see that pieced out into its own section, which does a much better job of helping tell the story of the code. Yeah, exactly. Tell the story of the code and also start to form habits in the reader which is we're sort of being drip fed this bit by bit. And I guess the hope is by the end of the book, thinking about your code in that way becomes second nature. So then Avdi returns onto this idea of roles and objects again. And it comes back to the, the thing we spoke about in the first episode around problem solving. Because he says, so you've got all these inputs and they're going to give you some things. And the question is, do those objects map to the roles that you currently have in your code base or not? And if they don't, what do you then do? What were your thoughts on this section? So this section was interesting. When he talks about the strategies, uh, these strategies will fall into three broad categories. And he talks about number one, coerce objects into the roles we need them to play. Number two, reject unexpected values which cannot play the needed roles. And number three, substitute known good objects for unacceptable inputs. Uh, none of those sound like fun, right? No, and it was interesting because I felt when I read it that there was an option missing. So either you've got to coerce objects into the roles that we need them to play. So that means, I'm assuming, taking your current classes and saying, mm, we need you to do this now, we need you to do that. Reject unexpected values, which cannot play the needed roles, but... I was thinking, if you've gotten those values, you might need them or you're intending on using them. And then it said, substitute known good objects for unacceptable inputs, which seems like you're sacrificing things that are useful to you for things that don't fit. So I felt like, where was the option for, and maybe this falls into option one, but where was the option for sort of refactoring or enhancing the current objects you have? And maybe it's the use of the word coerce that made me feel like you shouldn't be doing it. Yes, it's it's just, it's kind of the, the negative language, right? Like coerce sounds like, oh, well, that obviously we don't want to coerce anybody to do anything. And then reject, right? We don't want to reject people, we want to include them. And then substituting unacceptable, you know, inputs. Well, they're unacceptable. You know, I mean, like every kind of, I, I thought it was going to be three strategies you don't want to implement. Let me show you the, you know, the right way to do things. I was kind of thrown off by those, those three, you know, ways of doing stuff but also intrigued as to exactly how we were going to solve this problem. Yeah, exactly. And so this is where Avdi starts to segue into the first confident Ruby code pattern, I would say. He speaks about programming defensively. This is the idea that you sort of guard against certain things that may happen, whether that's changing the type of certain inputs or, or uh, making assertions about certain things in your code um, to check against certain issues you may come across. And he says that programming defensively in every method is redundant, wasteful of programmer resources, and the resulting code induces maintenance headaches. Most of the techniques found in this section are best suited to the borders of your code. Have you ever thought of your code as having borders? No, not really. I guess the only time I would think about borders is thinking about like an API interface and this idea of if another service or another 
party is going to use your code, then they're going to interact with it. And maybe rather than a border, I saw it as a layer, like a layer on top, which people use to interact with it. But this this concept of borders that Avdi's talking about, it touches on the API stuff, but it's broader than that, isn't it? Yeah. And he talks about object neighborhoods, which I definitely have never heard of before, which together form discrete subsystems. How did you understand an object neighborhood? So I was imagining like a little village and there are all these houses and essentially all your classes are grouped together based on the roles they play and maybe the overriding responsibilities they have. I mean, he references Rebecca with Sprocks and Alan McKean's book, Object Design. So I'd have to dig into that to see specifically what, what he was talking about. But I was just imagining this idea of it's how these different objects within your within your code interact and how closely they sit together or, or non-closely. What did you take from it? Yeah, I was... so. So visually in my head, that's exactly what I imagine. I imagine like, so Mr. Mr. Rogers is uh, like a children's TV show. Um, and Mr. Rogers passed away somewhat recently. But it was a really, really great show. And it had like a nice song. And in the beginning, there was kind of like this miniature, you know, it was like miniature cities that like architects, you'll see in like architecture firms, that kind of thing. There is, you know, um, a shot where you just kind of see all those houses and those little neighborhoods. And when I read that line, I just saw like that intro shot from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So that was my idea of object neighborhoods. (laughs) Um, And I was trying to come up with what would the code example look like? Again, outside of the definition of just, you know, API endpoints. What does that look like if I have two different classes and they're talking to each other and are they one neighborhood or is a class itself its own neighborhood? Yeah, I'm kind of not sure what that looks like and I'm still not really clear on it, but I'm hoping to get some more clarity as we keep going. Same here. So shall we get on to the practices? Let's do it. So the first practice that Avdi introduces us to is this idea of using Ruby's built-in conversion protocols. And I have to say, I was I love the um, the structure that he's laid out all of these examples in. So he starts with indications. So this is the kind of thing that you that you that you want. This is the need that arises. Then you've got a synopsis, which is like one sentence to one paragraph summary of what this example is going to show you. The rationale behind it, a couple of examples before a conclusion. So even within each example, he's telling a story. But what what is great is that it sets it sets confident Ruby up to be this great book that you learn from as you read, and that it's very easy to get information from. But it's also going to be something that you want to keep beside you for reference because it's so easy to find what you need again if you need it later. So um, no, I, I I really like the the layout of of this because often code books can be quite dense and. It's, and it's a lot of text to fight through, but you know, Avdi's really laid it out in a really nice, accessible way. And so the first thing that we talk about, which is built-in conversion output, so it says using Ruby's defined conversion protocols like to str, to i, to path, or to array, we can, with just a few extra characters, we can ensure that we only deal with the types we expect while providing greater flex- flexibility in the types of inputs our method can accept. So what was your kind of initial reaction to that proposal and that solution? So when he said it, I thought this sounds simple, but it's not something that always crosses your mind in the sense that you want a number. So to ensure you have a number, uh, just call 2i on it. But obviously, as we find out through reading the rest of the chapter, there are more subtleties to it. But but this is what I think is great is that he was able to boil down this example to a simple one sentence that made complete sense. 
and then subsequently through loads of examples introduce us to the subtleties of this this approach and so for that first example he talks about announcing winners of a race and we have an array of race winners the array is called winners and the names are things like homestar king of town marzipan strong bat are these real names of real winners of real races that i just don't know about no, I felt like they alluded to something, but I feel like Avdi has made them up. I could be completely wrong. Yeah, I feel like there's like a thing in there that I just don't know. It's okay, though. That's all right. We're just totally out of the loop. We're just not cool enough, Nadia. There'll be people listening to this saying, oh my god, how do they not know about blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay, though. Um, so it says that we also have a list of place objects. So he creates a new struct, and the struct has an index, a name, and a prize, and he gets the first, uh, you know, the, the first place person and creates a new struct on it. Uh, and when he does that, he has a couple attributes to it. So you get back the index of zero, um, you get back the name, which is first, and the prize, which is peasants quest game for that first one. And he does the same thing for the second prize person and for the third prize winner. So then he says, okay, now we want to announce the winners of the race. So he's putting together a string. And so he loops through the first, second, and third place winners. And he wants to be able to get a response like, in first place, Homestar, you win Peasant's Quest game. In second place, King of Town, you win Limousine Album. In third place, Marzipan, you win Butterda. Again, I have no idea what any of these things are, but that's okay. That's okay. And so... What he says is, in that loop, there's a part where he wants to get back the name of the winner, and to get back the name of the winner, now that information is trapped in the initial array, in the initial array of winners that we talked about. So it's not in the struct. So in order to get that name, we have to ask the struct for its index and then get that index from the winner's array so as you can see there's kind of more steps in there than there really needs to be right so he says it's weird because i've got this thing where on the winner's array i'm asking for place.index but really i just want to be asking for the index because that's what represents um the the placing of the person that we want um and so what he does is he defines um, on the struct, the the method to int, and that refers to the to the index, which means that he can now refactor the code to say winners first, winners second, winners third, and get the, the name that he wants. And the code reads much better now for that change. Yep. And when he did that, my initial thought was, wait, what just happened? Um, I don't know if you had that reaction, but I was like, wait, how did you do that? And he explains that the reason why this works is that Ruby arrays use to int to convert the array index argument to an integer. And so when I look at this, it feels like what's happening is, you know, when you call that first, that Ruby automatically uses the to int to convert that index argument into some type of an integer. And here you're telling it, you're basically telling it what integer to turn it into, and you say, turn it into the value of my index attribute, which is an integer. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, I often see that error message can't convert blah into type blah. And in some cases, and from, from what Avdi's saying, it could be a sign that actually you can use a built-in conversion protocol as part of a refactoring. So in the case where he he writes the code that he wishes he had, so he writes winners 
second before having done the refactoring and you get the error saying can't convert place into integer and that's the clue that it's trying to call to int on that array index and so you know this is Avdi's first example of showing think about the type you want and then manipulate the objects you have to give you that type. So my initial reaction to this was, oh my God, this is so scary. And the reason is because when I think about kind of manipulating a two int or a two, you know, S or, or any one of those things, it makes me feel like I'm, well, I mean, I am actually overwriting an existing method, which makes me concerned that there are a number of unintended consequences I just can't see in that moment. So it's interesting you you got that sense because I didn't at all. When you say overwriting, what do you mean? Well, because the two int, it exists, right? It exists somewhere. And so we're saying that by doing, by, by you know, defining our own two int, we're saying don't use, so maybe overwrite isn't the right word, but don't use that other two int that you normally use, use this one instead, right? Yeah, well, yes, I see, I see what you mean in some cases. So I mean, in this particular case, no such method existed on the struct. And so it, this was a clever way to sort of define it, but we would have only realized, I mean, you need to have knowledge of how Ruby array, arrays work and particularly with the referencing index to know that it's calling to int. And, you know, Avdi speaks about this a bit later on when he talks about implicit and explicit conversions. So in this case, it's rather than, I guess, overwriting, it's more taking advantage of knowledge of how Ruby works and using that to refactor your code. But I see what you mean when you're thinking of these the fundamental methods like to int and to s. You're wary, like, are you, are you changing the way some piece of Ruby already works are you accidentally modifying that behavior where you don't want to be and are there further consequences beyond the fact that i just want a string in this particular method right and it's not so much you know am i gonna mess up ruby entirely it's more of i'm telling it to use this two int method in this specific context for this specific you know struct but what if it needs to implicitly call to int for this struct for some other reason in which case I do want it to return an error and break because I don't want it to return the index. I, I'm not sure. And I think this just speaks to the confidence part, right? Confident Ruby. Um, I don't know how confident I would be that by changing something that, again, feels very fundamental, even if it's only changing it within the struct, I would be concerned about, okay, well, is there a different situation where I actually do want to see the error and I don't want to get the index back as an integer? Or maybe I want to get a different integer back and not the index. You know, it feels, it just feels like a, 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 a deeper change. Well, you know how we can get more confidence and solve this problem. <laughs> how, Nadia? Write tests! <laughs> that's true. Yeah, sweat and doubt tests. I mean, that's, that's the only way I can think about sort of calming these fears, right? If you say, well, in this case, I want it to behave like this. And in that case, I want it to behave like this. And you write tests to cover those cases, then you should be fine. So, and there's a nice table in this chapter that sort of Avdi lays out all of the different conversions that exist within Ruby. So we've got 2A for array, but also to C, which is complex. I'm assuming that's complex number. And there's some IO functions and 
other ones. So it'd be quite good to refer to that table if you have a copy of the book. But it gets interesting and where I sort of had to take my time and read it a couple of times to, to check that I knew what he was talking about when Avdi starts to talk about the difference between explicit and implicit conversions. Let's start with the example that he uses in the book. So he talks about the difference between an explicit and an implicit conversion in relation to the methods 2S and 2STR or 2 underscore STR. And so he says an explicit conversion represents conversions from classes which are mostly or an, or entirely unrelated to the target class. So 2S is what you'd use, for example, if you had a number and you wanted to say, what's the string implementation of this? This is a very in-your-face, I am changing you, <laughs> or I'm trying to convert you to something else. And the implicit version, so to stra, is to say that this is a conversion from a class that's very closely related to the current class that you're talking about. And often Ruby will implicitly send messages um, such as to str and to array, i.e. to ary, in order to ensure that they're working with the, ex the expected type. Whereas we as, as developers are more likely to use the explicit messages like 2A and 2S in order to convert our inputs into types that we want to work with. What does it mean by it being either closely related or entirely unrelated to the target class? Right, it's a bit hard to, to draw the boundary there on what he means. And, and in fact, I found that description not not very helpful. I actually found it more helpful when Avdi was talking about where you see implicit and where you see explicit conversion. Because I guess for me, this idea of entirely unrelated is you're talking about, you know, numbers and strings or dates to strings. So things that don't seem to be related. Whereas maybe um, something more implicit is this idea of file paths to strings or things that have a more evident string representation. Um, and that's what he means by closely related. But it's it's really hard to, I, f I, I found that quite tricky to, to get a grasp of what he was getting at. And for me, I found the explanation around how Ruby uses these conversions to how we would use these conversions more helpful in understanding the distinction. I don't know what your take was. Yeah, I just didn't really know. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure what that meant i was thinking like did he mean where it was most likely to be defined like I, or or how it was going to be used when we talk about its relationship i didn't know if that meant like physical relationship of where it existed or if it meant you know um relationship in how like the implementation of it and if the implementation was more specific to the target class versus it not being specific to the target class i wasn't sure what like how we were talking about being related wow like i didn't even think about this idea of like physically related within the code at all so that's interesting so if anyone's read this and you know the answer tweet at us at ruby book club and let us know including you avdi you're welcome to tweet as well so when we talk about explicit versus implicit the concept of ruby first of all this distinction between ruby doing things versus developers doing things is this very it feels it feels funny to me i don't know how you felt about that but i guess i never really thought of like us first ruby <laughs> it almost feels like a competition where ruby's kind of like doing its own thing and you know we're doing our thing and you know it'll automatically use them but maybe not you know i just never thought of like ruby as it's almost like ruby is its own developer doing its own things that you know we do or don't know about so i thought that was kind of funny 
I thought it was funny, but I was also fascinated by it because it made me see that, you know, I go on and code away and there's a lot of stuff happening in the background that makes this all fit together. And I think that by learning this stuff and by having a better understanding of this is what, when you when you pass an index to an array, these are the methods that are being called. Or when you call puts that, you know, that's actually calling 2S on it and all that kind of stuff makes us better developers because we have a better command of the language and what it does for us. And then we can think about what we can do to enhance that or to modify that. And again, it gives us greater confidence that what we're doing is going to behave the way we want it to because we know how Ruby's going to play with that. So if I were to try to explain the difference between implicit and explicit, I would say that implicit is something, first of all, that Ruby uses and explicit is something that we use. So there's like a difference in kind of who uses them. The second difference that I see is it sounds like Ruby's using them to make sure things are working as expected. It's almost like a, like a check, and it sounds like we're using explicit specifically to make a conversion. To make a conversion or to guard against us having inputs in a format that's unhelpful to us. Although there was one, there's one exception to this implicit and explicit divide. Um, so there is one time when Ruby itself makes an explicit conversion. Now, do you remember what that is? Was that the two straw thing? Well, this was to do with string interpolation. So when you, you know, have the curly braces with the hash, then Ruby's actually calling 2S for you. And as Avdi says, this anomaly makes sense because string inter- the fun of string interpolation comes from the fact that we can convert objects that aren't strings into a string. And so we kind of need Ruby to do that for us. And that to me was like kind of the, the question that I kept coming back to is, well, so are we supposed to, in terms of using this as a pattern, a way to clean up our code and make sure that, uh, you know, our input is what our input is, which one do we do? You know, do we do, do we rely on the implicit stuff? Do we rely on the explicit stuff? And, you know, in the example of the, the two int, I think it was, that we used for the winners example, that wasn't really our choice, right? Like that was because we were using something that Ruby used already and it used to int, therefore we had to use to int. Yeah, so I think there are two there are two ways, right? One is this idea of you know that Ruby is going to call a certain um, implicit conversion based on the way you're using inputs. So therefore, how can you refactor or restructure your code to play on that? And then I think there's the other side, which is I know that I want to be eventually dealing with a string or an int. And so I'm going to call an explicit conversion to make sure that by the time I get to the work part of the method, my inputs are in the form that I need them to be. So when do you decide which one to do? I guess it's more rather than deciding, it, it becomes quite natural, doesn't it? So I think as you're writing your method, as you're doing the collecting input phase, you've got to be thinking one level up and you've got to say, right, I'm fetching this thing and I need this in a string format for later. Is there any reason why this wouldn't be a string from the get-go you know so if you're fetching it from a certain place and you know it's always going to be a string then that's one thing but if it's maybe a user input thing and there's room for errors and you need to make sure it's of a certain 
certain format, then you might want to call 2S or something else to get it into the um, format that you want it to be in. Whereas I feel like the, the first thing I spoke about, which was this idea of um, the refactoring side, that naturally comes afterwards, I think, when you're sort of looking over your code again and you're like, hmm, does this read nicely? Am I calling an extra method in a place that I don't need to? So with um, the example that Avdi gave us, he's got this idea of winners and then places.index. And you know that's going to be an integer because that's what's defined in the struct. But later on, when you're reading it, you would say, ah, but by having this reference to an index, Ruby is going to call toInt on it. So therefore, I'm better off defining a toInt method on the struct so that that handles that directly and I can clean up my code. So I think rather than deciding which one you're going to do, through the process of writing code, you'll end up having the opportunity to do, to do both. And it talks a little bit later also about wanting to forgive your input types. And it says that if you want to be forgiving of those types and just make sure that our logic receives the type it expects, expects we can use explicit conversions. Whereas if you don't want to be forgiving, you want to be more strict, then, you know, you would do something a little bit different. So to me, it's, it's a question of, okay, so when do I want to be strict? And then when do I want to kind of let things go and, and just, you know, make them flow, you know, anyway? Right, exactly. Because there might be some times when you're being explicit and you morph something into perhaps say you've got some text which you call which you want a number and you call two i on it and you get a number whether that's zero like the example that avdi shows in the book and so the thing the program will continue on as normal even though in fact you had a nil in your code um for example and so the question is do you want to definitely blow up if there's a chance that there might be an error such as that yeah and that's the thing like my i feel like my answer will always be just make it work just make it like do the thing i wanted to do so this kind of decision point is something i'd love to get more context on and see more examples more real life examples of this is a time where you definitely do not want to be forgiving you know when it comes to these types and this is a time where it really doesn't matter i'd love to kind of see that more in play and i think that'll give me a better appreciation for that decision point yeah i wonder if in later examples avdi digs into this a bit more because that will be interesting to see but essentially the conclusion of this chapter is if you've got a specific input type in mind, then we can use Ruby's standard conversion methods to make sure we're dealing with the right type. And, you know, like you said earlier, if we want to have more leeway, then we use explicit conversions. But if we want to be more strict and make sure that the, the method is being used in the exact way that we want it to be used, then implicit conversions are definitely safer. Any more thoughts on this chapter? No, I don't think so. I think that for me, putting it into practice is going to be about, one, remembering it, remembering that there is, you know, this thing that I can, um, you know, manipulate and this thing that's kind of available to me. I think it's going to be about not being afraid to, you know, write out and kind of use these uh, these tools, which still feels a little scary to me. So kind of, you know, leveraging them and using them as a resource. And it's going to be about those decision points and really understanding one to go one way and one to go another and understanding the reasoning behind that. Yeah, and what I think is really cool about the way this book is structured is, so we've read one key example now and we've got something that we can go and try tomorrow when we write some code. Um, and so that's what's really cool because, you know, you can read a programming book and it's a really, you know, chapter by chapter, you're building up on a general thing, whether that's, the, you know, a certain refactoring technique or 
or um, an overview on object-oriented programming. And this is sort of definitely an overview in this idea of confident code that tells a story and splitting up your methods in a way that's very organized and maintainable. But it's it's broken down in these bite-sized little chunks, which means that we can start applying this stuff straight away, which is cool. So I'm excited to try uh, using these built-in conversion methods this week uh, at work. And so next week, we're going to be talking about 4.3 conditionally called conversion methods. So very excited about that. Some more conversion method stuff and digging into that. So hopefully we'll see you then. See you then.